0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We are in a series called Faith in Action, and James, um, as the theme of the letter, uses this word uh, mature or perfect seven times within the book of James. Uh, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's what his half-brother Jesus used that phrase. Um, and the word we probably use from a conventional cultural word is, is just wholeness. I mean, isn't that what we're all going for? Holistic medicine and holistic food and holistic uh, you know, parenting and holistic school. Just this picture of, of wholeness, um, I think is really tangible and cultural right now when we talk about wholeness. And, and, and James is, is, is um, inferring on his reader, readers that the, that the journey towards that wholeness can only come through faith. Um, that ultimately speaking, that people um, uh, in, in Scripture, the revelation of Scripture, and understanding of humanity is not so much that we're Hitler's, but that we're hypocrites. Um, not so much that uh, we don't do some good things, uh, but oftentimes we do good things to try and cover up for the dark things and for the broken things uh, that are going on in our life. And so the process, the journey of salvation, is not just a journey uh, as an escape hatch out of hell when we die, but a journey towards wholeness right here, right now. That's what um, I think James and Jesus would be preaching uh, to us, you know, through this book. But um, Here's a photo of an important um, toolbox that I have in my garage. You might have one of these um, in your garage that keeps all of the spare parts of all the things that I've ever built in my life uh, or in adult life up until now. Um, I've built a lot of things, loof beds uh, for my kids out of Ikea, um, those little helicopters that grandma gives you without the batteries that you have to build and put together um, with a lot of YouTube help. Uh, I put together a garbage disposal, I'm not bragging, I'm trying to be humble, but I do that now. I put together a ceiling fan, um, I got done underneath one of the flanges of a toilet one time, and I'm, I'm a pretty big deal uh, in Simpsonville. I just want to let you know. And, um, and although um, none of the things I've ever built have ever collapsed to bodily harm of any of my children or people that I love, um, I can't say that I've ever completed anything without having a few spare parts, amen? And so um, uh, I, I'm not perfect by any means. But I am smart enough to say this, that when Kyra turns around and sells that shleef and in bed in five years on Facebook Marketplace, I'm not a savage like some of you guys, and I will be presenting the spare parts, because if there's one thing I'm standing on, is the fact that I keep my spare, my spare parts. Um, in, in our modern world, um, in our uh, industrial and really post-industrial, post-modern uh, time, um, we are uh, living in, in, in an environment and a culture that very much uh, upholds uh, modern and, and mechanized Theories of thought. Um, And one of the um, theories and the thoughts uh, that I want to put before you today is there on the screen is the theory um, that we live in modern times of reductionism. Reductionism simply means that the whole of something is really just the summation of the parts. Um, That uh, if you have a bicycle, uh, the bicycle is just made up of a couple wheels and a couple chains and a steering wheel. Um, And if you were to take the bicycle apart, you just have a bunch of parts that are sitting there. And if you were to take uh, for example, the pedal off of a bike, you wouldn't have um, a, a, a bike that can no longer um, be a bike, and you don't have a pedal that's no longer a pedal, you just have a pedal that's separate from the bike. Reductionalism says that you should be able to take machines and, and really um, lots of items in life and spread them out on the table and deduce uh, them, reduce them, and maybe even improve them by swapping out some of the parts, by adding parts and taking away parts. And so machines um, very much fit into this mold of, of industrialization of, of reductionism, that, that, that really everything that we see, touch, and feel is just the wholeness that represents the sum of parts. And what we are finding out um, after modernism, in postmodernism, um, is that although reductionism, reductionism is great for analyzing, assessing, and improving machines, it's really not great in analyzing, assessing, and growing humans. Uh, have we found uh, this out yet? That um, reductionism, uh, for example, for a student uh, in a school doesn't quite work. Like, uh, like if I have a student that's in front of me and I'm trying to teach them math, um, I can have the best teacher in front of them. I can have the best uh, technology in front of them. I can have a whiteboard with the best you know, uh, pedagogy of how to teach a kid. But if that kid is not coming from a loving home where they're eating breakfast, then that kid, uh, even though they are in the, in the best school potentially setting, they're not going to be a great student if they don't have a great home. Because you can't just treat the student without understanding the home. Uh, similarly, we, you know, we're understanding in, in a postmodern environment, in a post-reductionist understanding that um, if you take a patient, for example, and they need heart medicine because their heart <laughs> isn't, isn't cooperating and doing what it ought to do, um, to treat the heart but not treat um, the stress and the lifestyle that that person is involved in, to treat the part of that person's life without envisioning and understanding the wholeness of that person's life uh, betrays probably uh, the efforts that we're trying to do as physicians with the people in front of us. And so whereas modernism has taught us that the things that we see, touch, and feel can be improved and assessed and analyzed based on the sum of the parts, really we understand um, that, at least with people, if not with a lot of things in life, that uh, the people in life and a lot of life are more than the sum of their parts. And so maybe you've noticed this dangerous thing, um, not just between uh, you know, machines and people, but also between the physical and the spiritual, that, um, that the products of our culture of, of modern mechanics and rationalism and reductionism have not just stayed in, in the physical realms of our societies, but have made their way into um, the spiritual sides of life that in many ways the church can be victim to and the cause of reducing our faith to some of the essential parts while losing sight of the greater whole. So for example, with salvation, although salvation is the past, present, future work of Jesus, the complete work of Jesus to bring somebody out of a fractured state of spiritual death into a whole state of spiritual life, Salvation has just become a conversation about what should somebody pray so they can go to heaven. And so the, the debate lines fall out and there's different denominations about does the word repent have to be in the prayer for it to be a real salvation? Does the word Lord and Savior have to be in the prayer? Is it just Savior? Is it just Lord? Is it inviting him to my heart or my spleen or somewhere else? That the, that the, that the doctrines of our life try to encapsulate and try to reduce salvation into a prayer and then we ask ourselves, where's the power of this salvation? We find ourselves missing some of the power of the wholeness, of think, what the Bible tells salvation is. Or church, for example, we have taken church, which is supposed to be a very encapsulating, enriched identity that goes beyond race and nation and status and culture that is supposed to encapsulate and, and require our fullness and wholeness of faith. And we have reduced it to a place that we will show up on Sunday to listen to songs and sermons. Have you noticed how reductionism can creep its way into our modern thought or postmodern thought. Or lastly, even our neighboring, that neighbor has been claimed by culture and neighbor is simply a zip code and a yard that we have and a fence that we don't cross over and a nice conversation about when the tree branches grow over the other side of the fence, the neighboring, how to deal with tree branches and flooding that goes across the boundaries, that neighboring even has been reduced to a certain kind of handshake that can happen over picket fences you know, in our lives. And then we wonder where the power of church and the power of evangelism you know, has gone. And so James emphatically speaks to us in James chapter 2, where you're at, um, in verse 26, with this uh, one-liner. Uh, he says to us in a fractured and a, and a reductionist worldview and a, and a reductionist spiritual life, he says to us this, listen, as the body is without the spirit is dead, as the, as the spirit leaves a body, you would, you would call a spirit without a body or a body without a spirit dead? He says, so is faith without works. As, this, as the body without a spirit is dead, he says, so is faith without works is dead. So what, he's, what he absolutely is, is saying here, what he must be saying is that, um, is that it, it, it's, if we were to find faith without works or works without faith, not only um, are they spare parts that need to get put back together again to become better, then in fact, faith separated from works is actually not faith and it's actually not works, what he's saying is that, we, it, that, that, that faith without works is dead means that we can't just sprinkle a little bit of faith on our works or sprinkle a little works on our faith and make the thing happen. Then in fact, faith is works and works is faith. And so to have one without the other is an oxymoron. They're inseparable because they're not fractured, reduced parts. They're actually supposed to be one part of an entire whole. And so, um, so as we look at this, this passage together, I need to be very clear to create the correct... Categories as we go along. Uh, What James is absolutely talking about today um, is both actions and individuals. So, in other words, what he's saying to us today is that in some parts he's speaking to just um, unhelpful actions. He's speaking to us in terms of unuseful actions, those actions that are not rooted in faith. He says, What good are they? They're not good. They're dead. They're not useful. That doesn't mean that a person is not a Christian. It just means that the faith that they're practicing can't can't see them through the challenge they're in it can't bless the neighbor that they're in front of it can't share the gospel that they're intended like in other words that the that 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 the, the work that is being taken place, the deed that is being done through that Christian is a dead work, it's not working. So he's speaking to actions, but he's also speaking to individuals, that in some ways he's speaking to people that might be in churches or even in this room that because they're part of a small group or because they were born in the right family, or because they profess certain doctrines or because they pray to prayer, think that they're Christian, but they're not because if a person has faith and it doesn't show itself into works, then faith without works is dead. And so he's speaking directly to us, or at least the parts of our lives, that say, my attendance belongs at church, but my body belongs to myself. He's saying that partition cannot happen. My attendance belongs at church, but my politics is my right. My attendance belongs at church, um, but my sexuality in my bedroom, that's my right. That's my body. My, my attendance belongs at a church on a membership roll, but my money is mine. He's saying that area of life, whether you know it or li- not or like it or not, that area of life is dead. It does not mean you're not a Christian, it just means in that area of life, there isn't an action-oriented faith, and so that area of life is dead. But he's also not just speaking to unuseful actions, he's also speaking to unsaved people. That if a person is going on for 10 and 20 and 30 years, and after 10 and 20 and and 30 years, uh, the identity of Christianity, of course, is to love Jesus and hate sin. If a person is going on 10 and 20 and 30 years, and they show up to a church on Sunday, every single Sunday, but they still hate Jesus and love sin, then that faith is dead. That is not actual true faith. And so um, he he goes on, and and this is the real zinger, and then we'll get into the passage this morning, but I just want to read one more uh, thought getting into the top of the passage. He goes down in verse 18, and he says, "Not Not only is faith without works dead, it's also demonic. This is what he says. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith with my deeds. You believe there is one God, that's great, but even the demons believe in that. That the, that the ability to, uh, to analytically ascend to certain doctrines of faith without action um, could possibly cause a person to think that they're a Christian, not a Christian. And what he says, it's not, that's not only dead faith, that's, that's dangerous faith. That's demonic faith. Because if you think about it, what more would the enemy want to do than to have you know, a church whose um, gospel entitles them and enables them rather than empowers them. What more would the enemy want to do than have a church that has faith that doesn't actually have action? That that would be a brand of demonic faith. What more would a demon in our presence want to do than to have our kids be raised up in places where their parents talk about faith in Jesus but don't act on that faith in Jesus? What more would a demon want or do? Isn't it demonic faith, for example, um, for even a believer? Uh, for their faith to be relegated to a certain set of doctrines and beliefs without actually being applied into action and principle. I think that's um, what James is saying and to the audience that that James is talking to. Uh, And so if you just join me um, in James chapter two, uh, we'll just kind of get started in verse 14 and make our way through. So notice he says he has two different um, approaches here for what faith without works means. In verse 14, he says, what good is it what use is it? What help is it for an action to happen if it's not rooted in faith? What good is it if there is an action that's not rooted in faith? And notice he addresses Christians here. He's not addressing the world. Christians can do good things that are not rooted in faith, and what good is that? If someone claims to have faith and has no deeds, what good is that? And can that faith save them? So not only unuseful actions, but also unsaved people. Verse 15 says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So we think that the test before us that he just presented in verse 14 and below is the test of a poor guy coming before a rich guy and asking for money. And maybe that is a place but I don't think that this passage is saying to carte blanche, just give every poor person all the money in your pocket. I don't think that's what the, what the test is. The test is not about rich people giving money to the poor. It's about faith people living out their faith into action. And so faith into action happens at every intersection where, where my belief is forced to a choice that I have to choose to take an action, take a step based on what my faith says that I wouldn't have taken if I didn't have that step. That's, that's where the test lives. And so the intersection of faith is not really... The listening of the sermon or the coffee date that you'll go to or the processing that you'll have with a small group, the test that is before us all the time isn't always just a poor person coming before us. It's when tithing comes up in the conversation, that might be the test. It's when action comes into the conversation. When someone lies about you behind your back and you have to make a decision, a choice about what you are going to do about what you believe, that's where the test lives. That's where wholeness and growth lives. It's not necessarily um, from a worship song or from prayer sessions. These are all great preparations for our faith, but the growing and the challenging, the testing of our faith is when you have an opportunity to do something to benefit yourself against someone else and get away with it, and you're tested in that moment. Or when somebody tells a lie about you, an untruth about you, or when somebody else gets something you wanted that you worked for and they got for free, that's where the test comes up. And so what James is saying is not that we don't practice as Christians faith and that we don't practice works, but it's the fact that we, we seldom uh, employ our faith into our works. And, and I think the reason why he would approach this, um, this battle so head-on is because he knows we have so much opposition about it. I mean, here's the poor guy, and he comes before you. And here's what we are all thinking when the poor guy comes before us. When we read this verse, he's reading this verse not because half of us are doing it right, he's reading it because we probably all got it wrong this week. And the poor guy comes before us, and this is just one of the examples, and this is what you're thinking. It doesn't really matter because doesn't this place all burn up in the end, right? None of this material stuff matters, and so money doesn't matter, and the poor guy doesn't matter, and this isn't gonna lead to his you know, salvation, and so probably my choice is not to give the money because it doesn't matter. Or maybe the thought comes into your mind of legalism, like I don't wanna become one of those people that thinks I'm proving myself to something to God, and so I don't wanna give the money because that would show that I'm trying to prove something and do a good deed to prove something before God. Like all of these thoughts begin to swirl in our heads. Or Jesus said, you know, that, isn't, isn't it true that we'll always have the poor? And so really, it doesn't really matter if I, if I give this away. And so he's, he's speaking to this moment because he knows, not that we've spent this entire week putting faith into action. He knows the obstacles, the opposition, and the great power and authority that can be gained at the intersection of faith and action. And that's oftentimes the intersection that we live. And so here's what he says that we do. It says that we, we, we it's not that we don't practice faith or deeds, it's that we don't marry faith and deeds. We don't marry faith into deeds is what he says. And so he says in verse 18, but someone will say, you will have faith and I will have deeds. You see the fracturing. You see the compartmentalization. It's that I do faith over here and I do deeds over here, but the two of these things are not interconnected. They're not integrated. And he says, let me show you what this should look like, not just faith or deeds. He says, but let me show you what this should look like. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I was listening to a pastor on a podcast the other day and he got on there, and uh, the interviewer's like, man, how do you do it, You know, Pastor so-and-so? You have 28 churches, and you have four books, and you have the number one podcast you know, on, on, on iTunes and all this kind of stuff. And, and he goes on and on and on, and I'm thinking to myself, man, is this the point where he's going to say, dude, are you okay? <laughs> like, how are you do- like, why are you doing so much? Why are you, why are you um, seemingly so uh, rapidly trying to do more and more and more? And, and none of that happened. Uh, because the podcaster was basically kind of like, um, you know, how do you do this? Show us the five steps to, to be able to be uh, super busy and fill your calendar wall to wall. So he's speaking to, um, to this kind of a person that would do a lot of works without necessarily the right motives or the right intent, but he's also speaking to the person who's, um, like me, talking a lot, reading a lot, and maybe not taking action uh, as much, as, much as, as, as we could. And so he's, he's saying um, oftentimes what we do is, is we practice faith and we practice deeds, but these things can live in their own separate bubbles um, in their own separate worlds. And so all the while, um, James is asking, what are we doing with our faith? How can we a- apply and, and express our faith um, into action and see those things um, come together? And so I was thinking about it this week, and, um, and I'll have it on the screen, this, this quote, but um, remember the beginning of, um, of this passage, the whole entire uh, setup in the context for James is about uh, faith through testing, that testing is the thing that brings wholeness to our faith. And when you think about it, isn't it true on the screen? This is the statement that I'll make as I review some of the testing that I, I've gone through or the testing that I am going through currently. Isn't it true that this gives us understanding for why testing should be accepted in joy? Isn't testing a joy... Because isn't testing the sacred scalpel that continues to prune away both our faithless deeds and our deedless faith until all we are formed for is faith in action? Isn't it true that at the side of the hospital bed, when all of the busyness and heroism and self-dependence and get-or-doneness and the checkboxes of life begin to melt away Because we can realize almost all of a sudden in a glimpse like that, through suffering, the powerlessness we have without Jesus. Isn't it true that testing comes to us as a gift that we might have joy, not because we're masochists, that we would have joy through testing because isn't it suffering that prunes off our faithless deeds? The busyness and the performance and the achievement mentality that we think we will get more done and be more fruitful by being more successful, isn't it pruning that does that and takes that away? And secondly, isn't it sin? The sin that lives inside of us and the sin that happens around us that prunes away the opposite, the deedless faith, the belief that I could huddle into my library with my favorite um, fine-tuned theologies and my favorite YouTubes and my favorite podcasts, this little bubble that I could create. Isn't it the fact that even in that little bubble that sin can continue to harass and, and, and... envelop and, and to manifest itself even in the smaller and smaller worlds that I create without the action? Isn't it true that both suffering and sin can prune away deedless faith and faithless deeds to actually give life to faith and action, to actually give life to wholeness? So he goes on and he, he starts with a practical example and he moves to a theological example for those of us that are a little more Bible nerdy um, and, uh, and, and thinking about some of the, con- the conflicts, really, between, let's say, Paul and James and justification by faith. So he says it this way in verse 20. He says, "'You foolish person, you, uh, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar?' You see, that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness.' he was called God's friend, and you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So I'm going to have to uh, see how fast I can get through my little sermon illustration because I'm realizing uh, where we are in our service and what time it is. Uh, But um, a chart, a list, and then then an illustration, and then I'll close. So if you have been around church for any number of time, your radar should go off at this last verse. Let me read it again. You see a person is considered righteous, not by faith alone, by what they do. Did anybody notice some of the contradiction or some of the things that would rub us the wrong way as Protestant Christians, right? That we are saved, we are justified by faith alone. In other words, we're saved not by what we do, but what Jesus has done. If there's anything that we got right on the Bible quiz, that ought to be it, right? So even look in contrast there in in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says it this way, for we maintain that a person is saved by faith apart from the works of the law. But look what James says. Verse 24 of the verse we just read, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. How do you reconcile Paul and James' theology? How do you reconcile Paul saying we're justified by faith alone? And how do you reconcile James saying we're justified not by faith alone, but by what we do? How do you reconcile those two things? Well, it turns out James and Paul were actually pretty cool. They knew each other from the book of Acts that we talked about earlier in the, in the year. And I'll show up a little chart to help explain uh, how these contrasts become really a resolution, uh, two sides of the same coin, is that it all comes down to the way we use the context of words. Like if I say rock, it could mean a stone, but it could also mean um, uh, what I do when I play guitar here, you know, with my kids or something like that, right? Rock. So rock has two different connotations. And so when Paul is saying justified, he's saying declared righteous. Whereas when James is saying justified, he's saying to display righteous. And to Paul and James, they're the same word. Rock is used in the same, con- same word, but they're meaning in two different contexts. Justified means both to be declared righteous and to display righteousness. And works, in the case of Paul, means the acts of the law versus Paul or versus James is saying works is the acts of love, and so um, if I could, I'll just skip right to the sermon to the illustration and uh, and uh, try to be expedient this morning. But if I could explain it this way, um, what Paul and James are both agreeing on, and then I'll, I'll close to the, to the point. Uh, what Paul and James are both agreeing on is that when somebody is saved, um, they're not only um, called righteous; they're made righteous. What, uh, what Paul and James are agreeing on is when somebody uh, is unsaved, they are an enemy of God, they do not have the nature of God, they are not seen as righteous, they are not made righteous, they are unrighteous. And so this is the way that God finds somebody, is, is they are unsaved and they are not um, a righteous person. And so what salvation does for us is uh, that it calls us righteous, but it also does something else. It also makes us righteous, which is very, very important. Um, uh, so if you could, uh, Maurice, go to the go to the screen with the three bullets there and see if I can make any of this make sense uh, about declared. And so this is what Paul and James are agreeing upon, that when somebody is saved, um, they are called righteous by God and they are seen as righteous by God. But it's just not like God is covering his eyes and calling an orange and apple. He's not looking at a person and just saying, well, I know this is an orange, but I'm choosing to call this an apple even though it's still an orange. That's not the fullness of what salvation actually is, according to James and Paul. What James and Paul are both agreeing is saying is that that when, when somebody is saved, although their life and their history and their family of origin and their background still look like they are an orange, God is calling it an apple because actually it is an apple that you and I uh, he that knew no sin that became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. At the point when we were regenerated, when we were reborn, we became righteous. We were righteous, and so on the outside of our life, before our testing, before our pruning, before our perfecting, before our sanctification, we are saved. And to the world, we look like we look like this, but God calls us this. And so over time, what James is saying is that through pruning and through through, through sanctification, he is displaying what he's already declared. That's the difference between you and me is that I can call that thing an apple all day long, but it's not gonna turn an apple. When God saved us, he called us righteous and we, we became righteous. And so over time, what he's doing in sanctification is he's removing the layers of our flesh and, and he's, he's, he's seeing that, cres- uh, that flesh crucified day by day and we are being displayed righteous until ultimately uh, we are being delivered as, <clears throat> as righteous. And so um, I'm gonna close up just, this is the point that I wanna make um, Uh, before we we go on to communion. Verse 25, if you go to that, um, Maurice. James brings up two Old Testament ideas. He brings up Abraham, and then he brings up Rahab. And the reason he brings up Rahab is because Rahab's the exact opposite of Abraham. Rahab is a Gentile, Rahab's a woman, and Rahab's a prostitute. And even though Abraham on social categories looks the exact opposite as Rahab, he's actually kind of the same because Abraham was from Ur, so which he already was a Gentile in the beginning. He offered his wife as a prostitute, so that's probably a problem. And he's barren, so he has no more means of having a baby than, than Rahab did. So in a sense, they look socially different, but they're actually the same. And not only spiritually are they same in the starting point, but they've become spiritually the same in the end. As you look in verse um, 23, both Abraham and Rahab, what, what, um, what James wants you to know about the apple that I hold in my hand, is that the thing that God calls us and the thing that God makes us, in the end, is not just righteous, because righteous is a you know, quality and identifier marker, but that we have become friends of God. And if there's one thing that I could close up on this dilemma, and I um, had to skip around, and, and hopefully you can kind of follow my line of thought uh, somewhere through the, the, the uh, remediated time that, that we had today, is that, is that ultimately the reason why faith and works go hand in hand is because ultimately what God is doing in us through faith is not just making us righteous, but making us friends. That he has called us righteous, and he has made us righteous. But not only that, he's called us a friend, and he's made us a friend. And so you have a friend in your life. Like, who are the best friends in your life? And how do you make a friend? You call on a friend, and you call them your friend. And you treat them like they're your friend, as long as you can treat them like your friend. But ultimately speaking, if you call somebody a friend, and friend them on Facebook, and follow them on Instagram, and say hey to them every time you see them at church... But over 10 and 20 and 30 years, that friendship doesn't grow and blossom, that it isn't for rich or for poor, that there isn't a give and take, there isn't a receive, there isn't um, being there for the person in good times and bad times. If it's just a good time, Charlie, if if they're only there for your your wedding and your bachelor party, but they're not there for you during the funerals, right? Like, you can call somebody a friend, but are they really a friend? Like, at some point, you can call somebody all day long a friend, but if they're not a friend, they're not a friend. And so that's the difference between you and I, though, because when Jesus, when God calls us something, I can call this thing an apple all day long, but it's not an apple. But if God were to call this thing an apple, he makes it an apple. We actually become an apple. So, so I think through that, through that rubric and through that metric, it makes a lot more sense to me as to why faith and works work, because faith is making us into friends, and friends do work. There's no way that I could have a friendship that doesn't grow itself and evolve itself and overflow itself into work and into deeds and into nurturing that, that friendship. It doesn't mean I'm working be- so that I can be the friend. It's working because I am a friend is the way that I think James would reconcile the faith and works dilemma. Take a snapshot uh, quickly uh, of the intentional question on the screen, potentially for group or follow-up. How is your friendship with God? The question I would ask out of this passage first is where is there faith without deeds? Having faith without deeds is actually false faith. Faith that we have inside of us makes us friends, and friends work. Friends practice friendship. Friends listen and share and go through hard times and good times and bad times. Where is their faith without deeds? The second question I ask is, where is their deeds without faith? There's a way to be busy and have 15 podcasts and do a lot of things to fill up our calendar, but if it's not with faith, then it's dead. So where is their deeds without faith? And lastly, where is their testing for wholeness? Potentially, through this passage, we might be able to see the importance and the joy that we might take on suffering and sin to understand that that suffering and sin does not come to hurt us or harm us, but to heal us, to prune away the hard edges of deedless faith and faithless deeds that we might become friends of God. Uh, That's the questions that I would have. What is your uh, uh, friendship with God like these days? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.